millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm your friend Faraz Osman and it might be cold outside but do not worry because it's all red hot here in this episode. Bye Bye Broadcast, Director General Tim Davey outlines an online-only future for the BBC. Our media experts offer a 2022 media policy roundup, and it's the end of an era at Sky News. Plus, TV critic and friend of the pod, Scott Bryan, gives us his must-watch recommendations for your holiday break. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. So in the news this week, Rupert Murdoch is set to be deposed as part of the Dominion Voting System's 1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. The case is over the media company's reports on conspiracy theories around the 2020 US presidential election. Entertainment publisher Variety has reported that 2022 was its best year of revenue in its 117-year history. The publisher cites heightened consumer interest in a rapidly changing film and television industry. And BBC Radio 3 confirms eight programmes will move to Salford. Alan Davey, the channel controller, says, We hope to support and develop a wider pool of established and emerging talent and build new partnerships with different communities in the north as well as the wider classical music industry. But on today's show, we have a lord, a legend and a media luminary of us to tackle the latest industry headlines. First up is former Culture Secretary Baron Vasey of Didcot. Ed, I really don't know how I'm meant to refer to you now. You're a friend of the pod. Are we allowed to call you, Ed? No, you have to call me Lord Vasey throughout, or Sir. Lord Lord Vasey, it's a... Okay, is it a Sir now? Have you have you been uh, upgraded? No, no, a Sir is a downgrade. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining us. You've launched a new radio show on Times Radio. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? That's quite exciting. Yeah, we're having some carpet installed at home, by the way, so you might hear some noises off. There's nothing we can do about that, but... um. Yeah, I was very lucky. I got. Is it taxpayers' carpet? Are you? Is this? Is this? Uh, have you got an interior designer at? Uh... It's all on expenses. Um, so <laughs> I've rehearsed for three different radio stations. I once rehearsed for LBC, never heard back. I rehearsed for Times Radio a couple of years ago, never heard back. I think I must have rehearsed for somebody else, but never heard back from them either. I've always wanted to do my own radio show because I grew up listening to speech radio as a kid, and I loved it. And I covered for a few shows well, in the last few weeks, and then. Uh, Michael Bortillo, I knew, was going to GB News, but they were going to give the programme to Michael Gove. Michael Gove very selfishly decided to go and serve in Rishi Sunak's government, not because he wanted to 
work in government, but he wanted to make sure that I got the show. So that was very kind. So I got the show and I started last Friday. Well, we're very grateful to Times Radio for warming you up for what is a much bigger and better show at the Media Podcasts. You've got to say, Faraz, you have to say the words. We're very grateful to Michael Gove. Uh, do I? Yes. Uh, well, I will get that. I, I will write that down and I'll send it in a letter. <laughs> Well, we're all very, we're all very grateful for Michael Gove for doing something in the last twelve years. I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I'm sure we can find something that he's, uh, he's, he's been useful for. Also with us is a marvelous Maggie Brown, media commentator and Channel Four historian. Maggie, what have you been up to? Uh, not a lot, really. Trying to keep warm, I think, at the moment. I'd say, but actually, I did have a book event. I had a book event Monday week at the British Film Institute. And the second book is, is doing quite well, actually. Brings us up to date. It's basically 40 years. 40 years of Channel 4, you can find. Ed, Ed is in the second book. Oh, sorry, Lord Vasey is in the um, second book. What do I do? What do I do in the second book? Oh, well, you have to buy it and read it. Oh, I could have sent you a copy. Um, but no, <laughs> no, it has you talking about Channel 4 and the privatisation issue. Evergreen subject. Maggie, this this book was you handed it in. If I'm right in thinking, you handed it in just before this round of privatisation, or do we have a lovely chapter on on the what's been happening in the last few months? It ends really with them moving up to Leeds or the national headquarters, and uh, with a kind of view about you know what happens next, really, which is a bit gloomy, I suppose you might say. Well, it sounds like already we know a third edition needs to be written because, uh, and, and we'll get on to uh, a few things that have been happening at Channel 4 recently, but it's, it's been all go over there at Horse Ferry Road soon, or maybe soon not to be Horse Ferry Road, but we will chat about that later on in the pod because finally we also have that story getter, Jim Watterson from The Guardian. Lovely to have you with us, Jim. How have you been doing and how are you keeping up with this flurry of media news that's still coming at us in December? Uh, well, I sort of feel my job is either telling people they're about to lose their jobs due to some new round of cuts or finding some new way that the BBC is sort of rapidly increasing its self-destruction. So, you know, I mean, that, that's basically the media diet at the moment. It's not the most upbeat of beats at the moment. It's quite bleak. You're like Santa with a sack of P45s. I'm like... I broke the story that they were going to do the BBC re- local radio cuts the other week. And, and all the replies were like, I remember finding out I was losing my job from a Jim Watson story in the garden. Yeah, I also found out I was losing my job. <laughs> it's like, what sort of miserable existence is that where your job is to just inform people that, 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 that everything's going wrong at their organisation? Well, if ever we needed another excuse to delete Twitter off our phones, I think we found it. But we have lots of big stories to cover. And one of them, of course, is about the BBC. So Director General Tim Davey just delivered a speech outlining an upgraded digital-only future for the BBC. Ed, what was your reaction to Tim Davey's speech and the vision that he outlined? I thought it was a pretty good speech. I mean, it was um, in some ways no different from the kind of speech you'd expect any Director General to give uh, at any point in history, because it was about the BBC being relevant and serving all audiences. It impressed me in some ways because it made me think, this is completely off the topic of the speech, by the way, but it made me think that this is the 100th anniversary of the BBC, and only in this country, and I think partly thanks to the Conservative right, uh, we're not celebrating an absolutely remarkable institution, but that would have been a nice thing to have seen. But in, in other ways, it was um, fairly obvious stuff, but important to articulate about the need for digital, or the need for the BBC rather to adapt to a digital environment, and effectively, you know, in 10 or 15 years' time, when everything is digital, what is that going to look like and what does the BBC need to do to be able to take advantage of uh, those kind of things. Jim, have you been munching on a bit of BBC birthday cake? How, how are you thinking about the, out, uh, the future of, of the BBC and, and how Tim has 
put together his vision in this speech. I thought that what he said this week made a lot of sense. And the interesting thing is that people can't separate the idea of the media from what they grew up with. They find it very hard to do that. As a country, we're still obsessed, and actually as a government, I'm sure Ed sat in enough meetings where, you know, some random line in the Daily Mail has suddenly sent Downing Street off in a different direction when really they could ignore it. Or um, you see the fact that we're still all obsessed with what's on print newspaper front pages, even though sales of those are collapsing. And in the same way, people can't really deal with the idea that channels might go because they understand channels. They know what BBC One stands for and they know what Radio 4 stands for and they know what BBC Three may or may not stand for, depending on where the hell it's broadcasting at any point in time. But they kind of they, they, they kind of get that. And the idea of saying it's just going to be content online is sort of challenges a lot of what how we understand how the world works. And stating this fact, which it does look increasingly like the fact that in 15 years, streaming will probably be how you do things as default and therefore having endless streams based on old FM frequencies and based on what you could get through a television transmitter mask probably won't be the best way of doing it, but it might not. But the, but the fear, and God knows how you do it, is you, how you stop the BBC just looking then like a less well-resourced Netflix. So do you feel that this is a pioneering move from from Tim? Do you, do you feel like this is where the BBC needs to go? Or, or is this kind of... You know, you mentioned earlier about the cuts in local radio. Is this just another way of of covering up a, a, a downsizing of the BBC? I mean, I don't think they're going to switch off all TV and radio in 10 years. But I, and I, I think this is partly a positioning and pass, partially also we've got the fact that we may well have a Labour government within two years who may have a different approach to funding the BBC. And they are drawing up their policies on media policy at the moment. And they need to have some ideas and some pointers as to where the BBC would like. So there's a lot of signalling around this. This isn't just as simple as the BBC saying, we're doing this for X, Y, and Z. There's also uh, laying the ground for, if you wish to invest in the BBC, this is the sort of thing we could do and where we could go with it. The eternal sort of shout that you hear from people in British TV is the dropping of Project Kangaroo in 2009, which was this proto-Netflix thing that was going to unite everyone on one service all of the public service broadcasters and was killed by the competition regulators uh, for reasons that no one can quite remember, but were broadly to do with TV will be around forever. That's now sort of held up by Davey and others as one of the great mistakes. And they're saying, look, don't hold us back with inane little rules this time. We need a, we need a fair crack at the streamers. Maggie, before we were recording, you were chatting about the revolution that satellite television brought to the UK. I think you were mentioning your is it a square eel? I had a squish and I had a, and I had a, the first satellite dish because I went to the launch and I stood next to Rupert Murdoch it's in uh, 89. And I said to Rupert, is it going to work? He said, it's a wing and a breath. He didn't know. And anyway, that Monday after the Sunday launch, a uh, workman arrived with my, my satellite dish and there was nobody else with the satellite dish. It was the first, uh, you know, the first birth of it really. And I know that people were very hostile. I mean, I got a legal letter from my council telling me to take it down. It couldn't be on the top in front of my house. But the fact is, people are frightened by change. And there will have to be change to the BBC. And we will have to probably be weaned off, certainly from this age of um, launching channels, which really started in the 90s and has sort of progressed ever since. But the, you have a problem with an, a, an audience which goes from, you know, little kids up to sort of maybe we'll all be, I don't know, heading for 100 years or something. You know, it's a very wide range of experience that the BBC has to cater for. It can't just switch 
over if you don't have a really robust um, digital network, which we don't have at the moment. That's one thing to consider. You do have to have resilience in whatever the public service broadcaster is doing because it does have to reach everybody. And we do have to be very wary, if you like, uh, how, how it's handled. But I think Tim is right to it's more than just blue sky thinking this this is actually trying to find a way forward for what is a very important public service because so i i agree with lord vasey that i'm i'm sad that there hasn't been a chance to celebrate the 100 years of the bbc and that could have dovetailed pretty well into looking forward instead we have endless um kind of attacks and moans even you know yesterday the fact um it's still not impartial enough it's not doing this it's not doing that and i mean i i spent yesterday morning i listened to um the the select committee uh on welsh broadcasting and it was amazing how upbeat they were in terms of expanding the welsh language audience at the younger end the the 16 to 24s with a new approach to content. There are lots of initiatives going on within the BBC and S4C, obviously, is public service broadcaster. So we, it's all got to be handled carefully. And remember, Tim Davey won't probably even be around as director general when all of this starts to happen. So he can put forward proposals, but he isn't necessarily going to be around to implement them. So I'm actually going to stick my two pence worth into this, even though I'm the host, Matt Deegan is foolishly given me the the microphone to say what I want to say on this as well. And I I wrote an article for Broadcast a few months back saying that one of the solutions is to tie the licence fee to broadband internet access and and actually have the licence fee be collected by the internet companies and distributed accordingly. This feels to me, I'm not suggesting that I've come up with Tim Davies' plan, but it certainly feels to me that this is a precursor to looking at the licence fee and how we collect that fee and, and tying it more tightly with broadband internet access and making it a digital first service. It's not a stupid proposal, Farris, and in fact, it's one that I've uh, considered in the past. There are various ways you could slice the cake. You could have a household tax, effectively a council tax, or the licence fee, so you could ensure it's easy to collect. Well, I'm, I'm off to update my LinkedIn to say Lord Vasey says I have no stupid ideas, because that's certainly uh, that's that's certainly one for my CV. Lord Vasey didn't say that, Farris. It's an extraordinary moment that Farris Osman has just had an intelligent idea. <laughs> Well, it's on, t- it's on tape, so we'll go back to the tape and see exactly what was said. There's definitely a hot mic that's captured something. But Jim, the final point that Davey made in his speech was a need for Parliament to move faster in regulating the future success, which seemed to be a swipe at this endless media bill that, that was meant to come and go and is now kind of back in the, in the public eye. Where, where are we with this media bill and are we ever going to see it come to the fore in the next few months? We sort of have to get the scissors out and cut around the bit that says we're selling off Channel 4 and then eventually it can be pushed back into Parliament and they can they can get it through. So I think that they just need to resolve that bit. The thing that I think is, is interesting with all of this is the positioning and thinking about what comes next because we've had a very hostile Conservative government. I really want to just hear Ed's take on this because he said at the start um, that the BBC has been under attack from the right of the Tory party. But also some of the biggest consumers of the BBC content are people who live in wealthy South South of England constituencies who are probably often voting Conservative. So I want to know from Ed, what is the actual attitude, both from sort of members in his old constituency and from MPs to the BBC? I can never really tell how much of this is sort of posturing by being in government and how much is actual uh, disillusionment with the BBC. It's not got much uh, intellectual coherence. It's based on slightly sort of knee-jerk tribal instincts. But if I stood in front of my association 
when I was an MP and was rude about the BBC, I'd get a resounding cheer from the same audience that would quite happily snuggle up to Strictly Come Dancing on a Saturday night. Do you sense a frustration within Westminster about this bill being drafted and delayed and redrafted and redelayed again? Or is it just a, is it just the machinations of, of how politics works these days? Well, for those of us who take an interest in these things, yes, there is a degree of frustration. I mean, I think uh, in some ways, Tim Davey kind of makes the point, it sort of semi-contradicts himself because on the one hand, the media bill, you already feel is slightly out of date because it's focusing mainly on things like prominence, which... Again, once we're all on apps, the prominence becomes uh, sort of uh, surplus requirements. Yes, I agree. I agree with this because do you remember the Communications Act, the famous one in 2000, didn't even mention the internet. And so that was a big uh, problem. And I think that it fed into this sort of in- incomprehension, really, about any project which uh, appeared to be anti-competitive. It's unfortunate because due prominence does matter at the moment. And and it, it won't necessarily be the same whenever we get a changeover if if Davy's kind of proposals are are correct. But I feel that the all of the public service broadcasters, and I include the ITV uh, side in in this too, they've had really a lot of punching and being sort of beaten up or ignored. I mean, during the whole life of this conservative uh, regime. And I, I think it's most unfair. I mean, how can you really plan, for example, if you're, say, Channel 4, pl- plan forward-looking policies when you just don't know what your fate is and you can't really even sign, say, business deals because you don't know exactly where you stand? They must bring this bill forward and they must turn some form of it into into an act. Well, you, you mentioned the frustration of, of ITV and, and on the week that it finally launched the much vaunted online platform ITVX, rumours have started circulating that it could actually abandon its public service broadcaster status unless the government hurried up and passed this legislation that would help it compete with other streaming services. Jim, this is one of your stories he's never not working Jim he's already trying to get stories out of Ed as well but this is one of the things that you did break on uh, through the Guardian what is this story and and how is it shaping up this was a briefing note set out and I'm sure Ed's had similar for the new culture secretary saying you know these are the challenges you face and one of them is look if you don't hurry up with this media bill ITV are uh, you know are at risk of, of giving up on their PSB status now look I think in reality ITV don't want to do that and I think in reality we'll probably get a media bill but but it, it, it's just them going, look, we're trying here. We're doing this worthy news content. We're doing this worthy stuff that we have to do because we're a public service broadcaster. Give us a hand here. We're getting our we're getting our dinner eaten by someone else. And so ITV, you know, there's negotiations going on and claims being made. And ITV didn't even say whether that was the stance that they want. This is what the civil servants uh, said was a risk. I think you just have to see what Michelle Donnellan was saying in front of the select committee the other week. And she seemed to have a slightly more friendly tone towards the industry than Nadine Doris, who is now a broadcaster herself, of course, and I believe may have more shows in the pipeline very soon. So the times are changing and I get the feeling that in the uh, last year of this parliamentary session or however long we've got, uh, you'll probably see a a few uh, more conciliatory tones towards the media. Ed, how does this all kind of shape up? Because, you know, obviously part of a big part of the public service remit is news. ITV did an did a exceptional job in the last few years, winning many awards and recognition for some of the news that they broke via ITV News. And yet, then we also have, as as Jim says, yourself and the Dean, kind of picking up microphones and reporting via news channels themselves. Is this just a kind of 
a revolution in in how news is is being offered to to consumers or or is there a bit of a strange dotted line between politicians and and the news networks because the internet allows direct access as a result yeah i think it's really interesting i'm I'm really enjoying uh doing my show and it's become much easier for politicians as it were you know show business for ugly people being able to transfer their skills from politics to uh commentary, if you like, uh, and news. I mean, I think in many ways, the news landscape is very exciting and challenging. I mean, whatever you think of GB News, they have to a certain extent shaken up the the atmosphere in the sense at least making uh, how one does the news a debatable issue. That's interesting because obviously there is this issue about politicians being guests and politicians being hosts. And it seems to be going in the direction of politicians hosting their own shows. Obviously, LBC have been quite pioneering in this space and and, and giving a lot of different, um, uh, you know, the mayor's had, their, had his own show and his own phone in. We've had lots of different politicians on the front bench get their own show to speak directly to voters and constituents. Is it a trend that ends with Matt Hancock on I'm a Celebrity or is, is that something that you endorse? Oh, well, I tweeted the minute Matt Hancock went in uh, that this was a masterful move on his part. I would kill to go on I'm a Celebrity. And I think that you will see Matt Hancock becoming a major media star, which fills me with absolute horror and bitterness and chippiness because uh, he's a nightmare to work with as a minister. But you will have definitely Hancock's half hour on Channel 4 if they've got any sense. Well, speaking about Channel 4, Michelle Donnellan confirmed that she's in talks with them about alternative funding models and the decision is actually imminent. So so Maggie, this is your patch. Do you think the privatisation genie is firmly back in the bottle or are we going to see another round of innovative thinking about how Channel 4 should be delivered to the public? I think that they're talking about a hybrid model in which there will be probably either one or a big partner, a commercial partner. I don't think it's privatisation, but I think it's adjusting the Channel 4 model because clearly if you if you look at the schedule of Channel 4, it does seem to me that it could do with a boost in programme budgets. And I would imagine that the privatisation, pure and simple, is is something that is so difficult to get through. I mean, uh, Evasi will know this, that, that they're looking for a compromise. The, the kind of guidance I would give is that um, last May, uh, the chief executive put forward a, a view, which was that they could raise up to a billion pounds uh, that would be released by an investor between 2025 and 30 in sort of 200 million pound tranches. Now, I don't think it's got the backing as such of the board. And they've got, obviously, after a long hiatus, they actually have a proper chairman now. But that is the kind of thinking, I think, that, that may be going on. The thing is that at the moment, you've got to remember, they're halfway through a transition in turning themselves into a not-for-London-based broadcaster. And that takes time to do. It isn't completed. And, the, for example, the news side of this, which is very important because they have a live studio in Leeds, that's been sort of slightly delayed by COVID and it's coming into its own, but there's still a lot of work to do in that whole move out of London. They've still not found a presenter in Leeds, have they, Maggie? I don't think they they, they seem to have been searching for anyone in the north of England who can present the news for about two or three years. This is my whole point. It takes time. You can't just expect an organisation which has got a lot of public service duties as well to just suddenly switch and it's in the process of switching and they've had like all the other broadcasters the whole damaging setback of not being able to necessarily go ahead with projects they planned during during covid so you do have to cut 
the public service broadcasters in particular, because they're not the same as the streamers. Let's get that straight. They're different. You have got to give them a little bit of, of sympathy and, and give them a, a bit of grace as they try to get themselves uh, organised. So I think that what is going to happen is, and I may be wrong, is that there will be an adjustment to the Channel 4 model, but it will still be publicly owned, but it will probably have a partner. And I don't know who the partner will be, but I, I would suspect that that will be implemented sometime maybe by about 2025. And Jim, when when this looked like it was going to happen, when we had a previous culture secretary and it looked like it was a done deal, there, there were chats about it replicating the Guardian model of having a trust and and it being, uh, it being looked after in, in that way. Is Channel 4 just simply not viable in, in the current setup it's in and we need to see overhaul in some way? It may not be privatisation, but it needs to be something to keep it sustainable for the future. Or, or is this kind of just a lot of hot air from a hostile Tory government? I think there's one thing that I always thought was quite odd about the Channel 4 privatisation debate, which we're talking about now in the past tense, apparently. But it was often focused on, A, programmes that people really vividly remembered, but from quite a while ago. So there was a lot of shouting of, it's a sin, we did it's a sin. And then there was also the fact that it was quite an inside TV industry debate. I'm not sure that the general public quite honestly, or even most MPs, really cared that much either way about the ownership structure. They might like Channel 4, they might like the stuff it produces, and they might have been very upset if the thing that they like was lost. But the idea that sort of inherently outside of a sort of a small chunk of the population that there was even knowledge that it was publicly owned is something I always was slightly unsure about uh, compared to the BBC where people really do sort of all have strong views instinctively on it. So maybe one of the things that has come out of this is that Channel 4 has A, educated a lot of people that is owned by the state, B, that it has this remit and C, that people might now be expecting it to deliver on that in in ways that they weren't before all of this got publicity. I genuinely think a lot of people will have learned for the first time that it's owned by the state during the last year. Ed, does that feel right? Is is Westminster full of people that are, you know, you mentioned a lot of people are, have got differing views on the BBC, and but they're all, they're all watching Strictly. Do we have a lot of politicians having differing views on Channel 4, but all watching Naked Attraction? You know, Channel 4 is a bit like House of Lords reform. Um, you know, the government tends to take a view, this is just in the two difficult boxes, we really want to go ahead and do it. But there's definitely, again, a big uh, tranche of the Tory party that would like to see Channel 4 privatised. And I always said that I was open to the idea in the sense that, again, with House of Lords reform, you may not be able to abolish the House of Lords or replace it with something else, but it will at least act as a catalyst for people to think, how on earth did you improve this institution? And, and Maggie is, you know, published a book pointing out Channel 4 is 40 years old, so there's no- nothing wrong with looking at an institution after a period of time and saying, are there things that we could do differently? But I think Alex has run a brilliant campaign. I think the energy has gone from trying to privatise Channel 4, uh, particularly in the tail end of this uh, government. Ed, you've been really kind with your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Most, most importantly, two quick questions. Number one, are you going to be joined by Nadine Doris in the House of Lords in the next few months? Sounds like it. And number two, what colour are your carpets? Are they red, blue or yellow? They're stripy. <laughs> well, there you go. There's, there's an exclusive for you straight here on the Media Podcast. Thank you for joining us, Lord Vasey, and uh, we hope to speak to you soon. And that brings us to the end of part one and on to our deep dive segment. This week, friend of the show, Scott Bryan, has a list of telly gifts to recommend to you all. Santa Scott is actually having a chimney installed in his home, so you may hear a little bit of noise in the background. 
So ITVX, of course, launched earlier this week. RIP, ITV Hub, we hardly knew ye. Um, it, it tends to be quite a lot of depressing dramas or kind of interesting spy-style thrillers are the shows that kind of um, uh, are there for the launch. So there's uh, Litvinenko, which is, of course, uh, at the Polonium 210 uh, Poisoning, um, starring David Tennant. That sort of started at the end of the month. I reckon a lot of people will be binging that. There's uh, A Spy Amongst Friends, which is a, a new sort of spy thriller that ITV have been pushing quite hard. I feel like what's really interesting about Christmas, and it's the same with the BBC, and it's kind of continuing the point that you were making about how everyone's having their own sort of box set viewing. I reckon that it's one of those things in which people really use this opportunity at Christmas to maybe catch up with the shows that they've been meaning to watch for the rest of the year so I reckon that a lot of people will be watching The Crown even though The Crown was out in November because they've not really had a break enough to go and watch it and even though uh, you know Netflix can not necessarily they've made themselves more transparent but it can sometimes be hard to read through the most popular hits I would expect a surge of shows from earlier in the year to be popular too and I think a case in point about why this has worked so well for others is why Happy Valley is coming back on New Year's Day uh, of course the much loved uh, series uh, starring Sarah Lancashire James Norton uh, written by Sally Wainwright that's been not, not on for five years but the BBC have been pushing hard series one and two available as a box set now i think in the hope that people kind of catch up and maybe try to remember what have happened because it's not been on for a while before having a big new shiny release on um, new year's day i'm feeling really seen here scott because it's this sounds like basically what you're saying is that schedulers have recognized that people like you and me have used a festive break to do tv admin and and go through the <laughs> list of all of the things that they were like they wrote down yeah definitely going to watch that and they open up their their notes app on their phone and kind of go right let me get all of this stuff done so i can catch up with pop culture and and feel like i'm reconnected to these these big dramas that win baftas later on in the year but it is it is genuinely fascinating that sounds like a trend that we're seeing that they they have actually mm. recognized that the best way to move people to those digital services and streaming services is by creating a new big episode that everyone talks about gets lots of press and PR and we talk about it on podcasts like this and then and then that way they can lock them into services which kind of brings us seamlessly onto the giants of the streaming world yeah, I'm sure you've got lots yeah. of recommendation from uh, from the Netflix and the Disney pluses we have so I think deliberately they've tried to not release too many things I think a lot of it is actually relying on older hits throughout the year rather than pushing for something hard the majority of releases tend to be on on TV traditional TV still I think the exception is a really interesting one it's called The Rig it's an Amazon Prime video stars Martin Compton and it's about a weird fog that smothers a oil sea uh, rig out in the North Sea and it's got supernatural things going on and it looks daft and a little bit silly. But Amazon Prime Video have been sitting on this series for an awful long time. I think they announced it back in February. Then they announced it again at the Edinburgh TV Festival. And then they just said 2022 was its release. And they've held out until literally the last opportunity of 2022 to release the rig. Which for me is either a sign of great confidence or maybe them mm. thinking oh, let's just shove it out now so um that'll be an interesting one to see but that's really the only big streaming release that i've seen i think it's like if you look at the tv there's all creatures great and small lovely call the midwife it'll be on every single christmas and for the rest of our lives brand new on christmas day uh, strictly christmas special and then there's like repeats of like the greatest snowman 
and the Christmas special of Gone Fishing. Like, just, just nice and tender warm. But it's surprisingly much more of a kind of traditional linear TV or maybe with a, a PSB Christmas rather than a rather than a streaming one. I have heard that Netflix have also got a, a love story of a of a prince and princess that that kind of goes wrong as a three part documentary. That that's their that's their Christmas treat. From what I haven't I seen it, mate. <laughs> have you Have you not seen it? Have you, have you watched any of it yet? I I feel that it's one of those things where there's a lot of people talking about a lot of it in detail already and i sort of think it's one of those those shows of what what benefit would i bring by adding my voice not much i'll sort of leave them to it i think that's fair enough although there are other things so i'm you know i'm I'm looking forward to guardians of the galaxy are doing a a holiday special i think that's just oh they are yes it looks like loads of fun um yeah so so yeah there are there are all those kind of like massive amounts of superhero films that you were going to go to the cinema to watch that you you never quite managed to get out of your lockdown home to go see and now they're all dropping on the streaming services that you can catch up on and also the other thing I wanted to mention was like one of my Christmas traditions is watching a Bond film on ITV right and this is probably going to be the first year where that's not going to be possible right well no what is the what is the 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 latest Bond film like the one that was No Time to Die right No Time to Die yeah so obviously that's on Amazon Prime well, no, they are showing it. They are showing it. They are showing it on ITV. I can't remember the date, apologies, but it is on during the Christmas period. Because for me, it isn't Bond unless it's on ITV lasting four and no, a half 16 hours. million commercial breaks. <laughs> loads of car adverts. But also because it's ITV, car ad breaks at really inconvenient times. So like key parts of the <laughs> plot completely and utterly demolished by a random advert for a BMW. But not only that, I'm, halfway I'm through... It. They just go like, before a key scene, like when a character dies or when it's all really high stakes, they go, great, put this on ice. We're now going to go to the news for 25 minutes for no reason whatsoever. Yes. So it will start and there used at, to be an intro. Yeah, so it will start at 9pm and it will finish at half one in the morning. But for me, that's Bond. That is what Bond <laughs> is to me in my household. That's how I grew up with it. I haven't seen the film, the latest one in the cinemas, because part of me is a sort of holding out for it really being on ITV. So, so some traditions will never die will never die well i mean i don't know if that's a spoiler for the actual film itself but um it is it divides opinion <laughs> in that film let's just let's just put it let's just put it that way i'm more of a tv guy <laughs> fair enough that's good to say and actually can i i just want to kind of touch on next year because it feels like next year is going to be bonkers for television right i think it's interesting that a lot of them are around reality or revivals so of course you know these uh, revivals and returns have been rather controversial in terms of like Gladiators and Survivor um, about whether like channels really need to bring up these old hits but I think one thing that the traitors showed to me which is brilliant BBC One show at the moment with Claudia Winkleman is actually appointment to view reality is a format that people really are warming to at the moment I think people love the idea of actually watching these shows at the same time as everyone else it creates big water cooler TV and I think it's it's something that we are going to see a lot more next year. I think partially because they are a bit cheaper to make than high prestige TV, particularly if the BBC is on a kind of much more of a restrictive budget at the moment. But also, I think it's one of those things in which it's so much harder to launch a show brand new than it is to bring back a format and maybe tweak it and modernize it for the modern age big brother is a perfect example of that everyone knows the format of that so even though i think if they've knocked it back it's not going to be on until autumn next year for itv2 i think they're just going well even if it isn't as good as the original series on a nightly basis that will still be huge for us and it'll also be a way to 
plug our own streaming service because people will be watching it live. So it sort of works hand in hand. So yes, if you're not a fan of reality, have I only got bad news for you to bring you into 2023? That was Scott Bryan. For even more recommendations and TV reviews from Scott, go to patreon.com forward slash mediapod, where you'll be able to access an archive of deep dive interviews with all our media experts. That's patreon.com slash mediapod. It's time for a short break, but do stay tuned as we'll be back with our media experts take on the change of guard at Sky News and we'll find out who is our final media quiz champion of 2022. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. We still have Jim and Maggie with us to talk us through the latest changes in our media landscape. This week, it was announced that John Riley, who has been in charge of Sky News since 2006, will be stepping down. Maggie, the big question, what is John's legacy going to be? Oh, I think his legacy is creating a superb rolling news uh, channel and also uh, one which is being received all around the world in different uh, guises. I think he's been a terrific leader. I think he's been innovative. He's obviously incredibly hardworking. I remember at various occasions him, you know, just literally leaping into his car. He lived in Oxfordshire, quite near the Camerons, and uh, just rushing into the studio to set things up. You know, he's a great newsman, uh, good judgment, um, leaves behind a great legacy. I've got very little to say against Sky. I'm, I'm a massive fan of Sky News, and um, I think it's been able to adapt incredibly well to all the different sort of um, roles that it's expected to play. Jim, you wrote that the outlet is facing 
a post-television future and it needs to adapt. Where is Sky looking to expand in its next iteration? Podcasts, internet, it's very push-heavy news app. Just to say, almost everyone I spoke to at Sky about John was really very pro him, which is not what you normally get when you report on the media and you ask around a newsroom. You, you know, it doesn't take much to get journalists to moan about their bosses, but people were really positive about him to a degree that actually surprised me um, because I just don't normally hear that even in even in relatively successful newsrooms. But there's a big change coming up. You can't pretend that a broadcast TV news channel is going to be necessarily where things are for the coming years. But I mean, I often have it open in a YouTube stream on a browser. So, you know, I, I still find them fast for breaking news if I need to get the video stuff really, really, really up live. The other problem is, of course, it's got a new owner. You see, Comcast took over Sky in 2018. And what you have to understand about the creation of Sky is that Sky News was absolutely Rupert Murdoch's uh, project. This was the one thing he was really, really interested in. And I think it also gave him um, a political um, access, really, or a Sky itself, when it was in the early years rather looked down upon. I think that the deal gave a 10-year guarantee to Sky News before anything really happened to it. So you've got to look forward to 2028 and see what is going to happen to it. And Jim is right. It's bound to change as the whole landscape changes, the media landscape changes. And we don't know exactly what Comcast has in mind, but it's absolutely true that his departure was 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 not exactly welcomed, but he was greatly praised by the new owners. So... I think that we will see changes and I don't know who's going to succeed him, but I suspect there's a very smooth transition that's already been planned. It's not been a flawless tenure. I mean, he had a, a the launch of the Sky News iPad app, which was very expensive and very flashy, seems to have disappeared. Obviously, more recently, we've had Kay Burley and Beth Rigby being caught up in the Partygate scandal and he had to suspend them for, for a little while as a result of that. And, and then more recently, we've got Piers Morgan and, and GB News both trying to say that they're beating Sky News in the ratings. Is, is this a, a sense of this is just how news works, that everyone's trying to be part of the story themselves? Or, or actually, are we giving John a bit more credit than he actually deserves? Of course it hasn't, because he's, he's managing real people. I mean, I watch Kay Burley most mornings, to be honest, and she's back and she's as good as ever. I mean, she's not going to last forever. She's one of the original cast, if you like, of, of newscasters. And, and Beth Rigby um, is certainly pulling her weight as political editor. So, yeah, he suspended them and then they came back. And they were told off, you know. I'm not saying that everything goes perfectly. And I'm not saying that it's a perfect channel, but it is very reliable. It has shown the way in in doing election contests. It's also been able to, I think, recruit good experts to come and explain things like the Ukraine war. And I think also budgets as well. I mean, one of the things that it does do well is business news, I would say. It's managed also to introduce a a child's for your information strand on Saturdays, which I don't know how it goes down with children, but it's a nice idea. Well, it won a BAFTA a couple of weeks ago. I know. The children's BAFTA. Exactly. And it keeps on winning RTS journalism awards. I have a lot of time for Sky News. I think it probably is the one to beat, which is why people like GB News are so nasty about it. <laughs> but Jim, your, your sense of you know moving us into a digital future, we've got the launch of ITVX. They've mentioned about having a big news channel as, as part of that launch. Is, is this going to be something that we're going to see 
in the future, the innovation around how news is delivered digitally. I'm with you. Watching Sky News on YouTube is a kind of part of my daily media diet. Is, is that just how we're going to start receiving news moving forward? I feel I'm slightly mad because I, I just don't really watch much linear TV at all through a broadcast aerial. I'm like Tim Davies' test case. So, uh, you know, the, the idea that, that I haven't largely consumed Sky through social clips for five to ten years now, it, it, you know, th this isn't something... We keep talking about these things as things that are happening. This has happened. Sky's live ratings, it has massive reach in any given week, but its live ratings can be in the tens of thousands. And, you know, and in the evenings, GB News, by putting on some blowhard who wants to build up his own little audience can get a hundred thousand and we say they're beating them but these are tiny figures all around you know we're still dealing as if could this happen this is a statement of facts people want footage they want raw footage and they want it where they are which is increasingly on their phones but it is problematic when it comes to a business model though isn't it i mean like you know with the guardian pushing subscriptions and you know when you're watching sky news on youtube it's certainly not getting the same revenue it's getting when you're a subscriber to sky do we really have a business model that matches up with the the movement of, of audiences to online. I mean, no, no. There's, there's a, I mean, public service worthy journalism is a terrible business model and you don't have to be mad to want to get involved in it and then try and build some way of funding around it. Yeah, I mean, no, there isn't one. I, Sky News has always been loss making. Murdoch subsidized it because he wanted the kudos. Comcast subsidized it for 10 years because they needed to get their deal through and they knew that that was a thing that MPs would like. And then in 2028, there's a big question mark going, well, what are they going to do with this then? They also own NBC News in the States. I think you'll see a lot more convergence with that. But impartial, or at least impartial leaning news is a terrible thing to try and make money out of. You're much better off doing cheap opinion that you can just shove out to people. But you know, all the public service broadcasters are doing this. Um, all of them are already there. It's just a question, I think quite rightly, who can afford to do it? And this is why you do fall back on the importance of the BBC, for example, because it will have to always do it while we have a BBC. I mean, it's all well and good saying, you know, that broadcasters are on TikTok and some of them are, and they are getting okay views. But I mean, most news on my TikTok feed is from some 17 year old in Arkansas reading out a Wikipedia page and something he's found on Google and getting 5 million views in the process. So the idea that a lot of these people can compete by doing a sort of measured take on what's actually going on, as ever, I sort of feel slightly like that that scene in uh, Doctor Strangelove when the bomb doors open and the guy rides the nuclear bomb all the way to the ground. You know, that's the that's kind of where I feel a lot of traditional news outlets are right now. We just don't quite know what the explosion's going to look like. Well, there's nothing but serious, hard-hitting news journalism here on a media podcast, and that brings us neatly onto our media quiz. So at this week, we'll be finding out who's under the spotlight, and the rules, as ever, are very simple. If you know the answer, you shall buzz in with your name. So Maggie, you will be saying... Maggie. And Jim, you will give us a big, strong... Jim. Thank you very much. Whose Netflix trailer has had accusations of misleading editing this week? Is it The Crown? Maggie. It's not. Jim, Close, come Maggie. on, Maggie. Come on. Have you read anything? It's, it's Meghan and Harry. Oh, right. No, I haven't read anything. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't read Jim's piece on this because you wrote about this, haven't you, in the paper. Let's Give, give us your take on, on this trailer. That, that many, many documentaries use stock images, but very few are high profile enough to have people going through matching up individual images. So I, I, I sort of go, I probably wouldn't have done if I was them to avoid this sort of coverage, but also it's probably more widespread than we think. As in shots are being used out of place. I mean, is, is... Stock images in documentaries is not that 
unusual. It's unusual to have such a high profile one um, and for them to be implying that crowds of photographers were there for them rather than just happen to be uh, available on Getty Images at the moment, the person cutting the trailer needed something to illustrate the moment. And is this a story as, as big as what we saw in the in the BBC One documentary where we had the Queen walking out of a room rather than walking into a room? Is this the same level of, uh, of controversy or, or are we trying to make a, a story out of nothing? Well, we'll have to see who gets sacked for that because if you remember the controller of BBC One, Peter Fincham, basically left after this misjudgment or whatever happened. Well, that leads us on to the next question. Which American publication has had a staff strike for the first time in 40 years? Maggie, is it the New York Times? It is the New York Times. It's a 24-hour strike that has begun with more than 1,100 employees expected to take part after management and the union representing staff has failed to find, after a year and a half of negotiation, a new contract for workers. Mm. It does feel that strikes are very much in the news across the world right now, Jim. And many media outlets... Uh, are unionized in a way that they didn't used to be and activism is going into newsrooms it's going to happen but i'm not actually sure in the new york times case whether this is being led by younger reporters who might be more radicalized by other political forces or whether this is older reporters who are long-standing members who just quite want their pension sorting out so I, I don't actually know which 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 of those two forces is driving this one and of course the new, new york is the most most expensive city in the world apparently to live in so or one of them so uh, i think actually across the board journalists are feeling so badly paid uh, that, that, that there's a kind of sense of revolt really that you can't just live on peanuts Although if you want to make a, a UK journalist jealous, tell them the starting salaries for junior reporters at, at New York-based publications and, and, and watch as their, their eyes as widen. What is it? It was someone who tweeted, you know, I, I, just so you know, I, I worked for a major New York publication as a, as a trainee. And uh, if you take this job after me, don't accept anything less than $110,000. <laughs> I remember this going around newsrooms and people going, oh, Oh, that that's 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 your junior salary in these jobs. Okay, interesting. You know, and many of them aren't that high, but I know the the yeah. the New Yorker was was looking at sort of having a base yeah. salary of around sixty sixty odd thousand dollars, which is many much more than many uh, section editors get in the UK. If that's a starting salary in the US, then maybe I need to start uh, updating my green card. And our final question, which country shut down an exiled Russian TV channel over a threat to national security this week? Maggie, I think it was Lithuania, wasn't it? Am I right? It wasn't Lithuania. Oh. Jim, do you want to I, go in for the steal? I'm going to go in for the Baltic alternative of Latvia. Uh, and take advantage of the fact that I couldn't remember which of the two L nations it was. It is, it is Latvia. It's one of the few independent Russian TV channels known as Rain TV, which has been operated in exile from Moscow in Latvia since the war broke out in Ukraine. But this week, Latvia's media authority cancelled the channel after one of its news presenters called for viewers to support Russian troops. And that makes our... Actually, you know, it's a little bit complicated. I think that makes our winner you, Jim, because I think you got in there with, uh, with, with nabbing the last hour answer so congratulations you win a what what do you what, what is it we want to get from you this, this for christmas what am i looking for for christmas as a winner of the media quiz maybe our listeners can chip in and uh, and get it sent over i just want you know people to occasionally read my stories and not send me you know green ink letters so just you know all a journalist can ask for i always read you jim 
<laughs> and I was kind of hoping that you were going to say Maggie's latest edition. Of, yeah, of uh, course, uh, and that. And, and Maggie's latest edition. I, I set you up for that, Jim, and you didn't take it. Oh, my God, you did. <laughs> well, I think I can send better Christmas presents, to be honest with you, more, more amusing ones. Anyway, I've held up my usual record of never winning the media quiz, so I'm feeling quite happy here. Well, listen, it genuinely is on my Christmas list, Maggie, so um, I'm looking forward to reading your updated version if no one else is. Where can our listeners find each of you and keep up with your work? Maggie, like you said, you just launched your book at the BFI. There are two books, The Licence to be Different, which is the first 25 years, and uh, Channel 4 from Big Brother to the Great British Bake Off, which is the the next 15 years. So it comes up to about 2021, almost 40 years. Yes, And I'm assuming it's available in all good bookshops. Well, (laughs) I don't know about that. Definitely on Amazon and definitely at the BFI. Uh, bookshop on the South Bank because I saw loads and loads of copies there which may may suggest it's not selling well enough. Well I'm going to be rushing down to grab one because I do need to update myself because the first one is brilliant so I'm looking forward to cracking open that one. What is next Maggie? What's the next book? I'm thinking of writing a book Ringside Seat because I realised that I joined The Guardian in 1980 and I've been literally writing about the media sort of for 40 years actually and then I've keep you know, remembering things and people sort of say, oh my goodness, did that happen? So I did have a ringside seat, quite a lot of quite amazing things. Jim, you don't have a ringside seat. You you are very much in it. So where can we read your latest journalism and, uh, and catch up with what stories you're breaking this week? I mean, you can always pay a click at theguardian.com and then occasionally I'm still tweeting at, at Jim Watson, but frankly, avoiding the site more and more as, as life becomes shorter and shorter and I just have better things to do. Have you got a blue tick or was that taken away from you or are you having to pay Twitter blue for, for, uh, for your verification? Mark? I've got official status. I never asked for a blue tick. When I worked at BuzzFeed, they just gave me one. And now I'm not just a blue tick. I've got official media outlet as if I'm some publication in itself. I mean, if you want to have an idea of like a site that's so completely broken, I have no idea why I have that. I don't even want it. It just, it just It's just another like target on me. Make it go away. Well, double tick, Jim Watterson. It's been a pleasure having you on this podcast. Congratulations on winning the quiz this week. I think that makes us makes you our Christmas winner for the year. So you can take that one to the bank. Wow, it's it's, it's like it's got more value than the Christmas number one single now. That. <laughs> well, thank you both for joining us, and thank you again to Lord Vasey for for joining us in the first part as well. We hope that you enjoyed today's show. We're taking a holiday break, and we'll be back in January 2023. So we're wishing all of you a very merry Christmas and a happy new year. If we are leaving a hole in your content schedule, you can find Scott Bryan's full list of must-watch holiday recommendations on our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash mediapod. That's patreon.com slash mediapod. My name's Faraz Osman, and the producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan, with support from Matt Hill, and this was a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you in the new year.